show for missionary disciples who worship Christ in the Eucharist and serve him and their neighbor, for whom the words of the creed reverberate through their daily activity. This is a show for those like you and me who make the conscious choice to follow Christ outside the walls. On social media, every once in a while, there is this auto-generated post that comes from your account that only you can see uh, that that shows you something that you posted sometime in the past, right? It's like, hey, don't you remember when you did this and took pictures of it for the world to see? I'm showing it to you again so that you'll feel nostalgic and stay on the platform a little bit longer. And it works. Uh, we're like, oh, yeah, I do remember that. I want to share that. I want to I want to uh, explore that with other people and let them see it. Or sometimes there, it's a, a memory that is a little bit more somber and we just kind of sit with it for a little bit and remember it and don't share it. Um, I got one of those posts recently. Uh, it's one that I'm going to share. I saw this post come across, and of course, I, I, uh, I killed my personal Facebook a long time ago and then resurrected it here recently. So I don't get a whole lot of those from Facebook, but, uh, but Instagram, uh, I did get one that was uh, of note, and it came through and showed me uh, this picture I took of all the people sitting on the bus, prepped and ready to go, to Philadelphia, all the way from Tulsa, uh, drive to Philadelphia for the world meeting of families for the uh, for the arrival of Pope Francis as he came to the United States, and it, it was just it was a lovely memory. First of all, um, to see all of those people who went with me from the diocese of Tulsa, uh, to remember the stories, to recall to mind all of those defining moments and the relationships that were started there, and some friendships that I'd had for a long time that continued and were uh, were deepened on that trip because there's um, there's something about riding on a bus for uh, for 48 hours, uh, 24 hours each way that you, you get to know a person. Uh, so we had a, a great trip and Pope Francis was here obviously to celebrate and to recognize and to talk about marriage, the domestic church, this this unit, this two becoming one and turning into something new. Uh, in some ways, this is very similar to the way that God operates uh, in that he makes all things new. And so here as a husband and wife come and create a new family uh, and create a new moment and a new uh, uh, microcosm of the church, a new domestic church as they live out their faith in their homes, uh, this is such a beautiful picture, and it's something that I love to talk about. Uh, that time in Tulsa was uh, a time that was deeply meaningful to me. Uh, first of all, I became a Catholic in Tulsa. That was a big deal. Uh, and then I had the the great privilege and honor of working as the director of marriage and family life and of the Respect Life office. Uh, there for the Diocese of Tulsa for a number of years. And um, it's still one of the favorite times of my life. It's if, if Facebook were giving me, hey, remember this as a, a, you know, these memory posts, that would be the memory post of my life that I keep going back to and saying, yeah, that was, that was really good. I loved that. I enjoyed that. And some of you listening may have been subjected to my pre-Cana classes as those who were preparing to get married and preparing to start their domestic church 
uh, were required by the church to go through uh, certain steps. And these are not hoops to jump through, although sometimes and for some people it might have felt that way. Rather, these were, um, were steps of preparation that help us discern rightly for marriage. In fact, um, there was a, at least one couple that I know of who went through the pre-cana and decided on the other side of it that this is not the best thing for us. Uh, and so to me, that was as, as difficult and as painful as that might be, that's a, a good thing because it shows that they began to see the seriousness of marriage. Um, they learned something about one another through that process that they said, you know, maybe maybe this isn't a good fit for us. And how much better for that to happen before the ceremony than after the ceremony. But for most people, they went through, they learned new things, they experienced uh, new realities of their fiancé, and they grew and they deepened in that relationship and hopefully entered into marriage better equipped and better prepared. If you went through my pre-cana, and I know a couple of you out there did, um, come on over to facebook.com slash step outside the walls. On Twitter, the handle's at outside the walls, and this is what I want to know. What is something from those sessions that stood out to you? What was something that you learned about yourself or about your spouse that that you learned on that day? And then the second thing I want to know is now that you are further down the road, all of you were at least five years down the road because that's the last time I did a pre-cana. Um, if that's where you are, then what have you learned in those intervening five years or more for some of you, uh, that, that stands out to you. Uh, some, some piece of information of joy, of, uh, of intimacy, of, of deepening relationship. What's a highlight of you living out the sacrament over the, the course of your marriage? Now, most of you listening did not go through my pre-cana, but I would pose those same questions to you. What from your marriage preparation time uh, really stood out to you that that changed the way you looked at marriage and sticks with you to this day? Answer that question and then answer, since you have been married, what's something that you have learned that you wish you would have known or that you want someone else to know as they approach the sacrament of marriage? Um, because this is a big deal, right? Our society does not prepare us for the realities of the two becoming one. I, I know that for myself, when I was looking to get married, um, you know, I, I went to college and fully expected, because this is the expectation that was set for society, that I was going to meet my spouse in college, because that's what you do. Well, I didn't. <laughs> and and then it's like, okay, okay, no problem. We're good. We're good, because I'm, I'm going to grad school now, so... That's going to take care of it. I'm going to go to grad school. I'm going to do school. I'm going to find the person I'm going to marry there. But I didn't. And so there was this sense of, well, great. Now what do I do? Uh, and you might laugh at that and, and you would be right to. But that was my, my whole context. And so as the society prepared me and my, my subculture, I had this expectation that certainly did not get met. And looking back on it now, I think it's the best thing in the world that it didn't get met. Not only because I would not have met the person I am married to, and that would be a tragedy, uh, but rather, uh, and even more so, um, 
I was not at that point in time ready for the responsibilities of marriage. I expected, as I would imagine others do as well, who are formed by the same society, that marriage would be an institution and a relationship that was focused on me and meeting my needs, right? That that love was about the experience of affection, feeling that affection, and that um, that I was going to marry someone who was exactly like me and liked all the same things as me. And this was certainly not the case and really could not be the case. And so I had to go through a period of preparation that was much longer uh, we we'll call it um, remote preparation. Uh, I had to go through this remote preparation where there was not a specific person, where I had to be refined in my understanding of what marriage was. I had to shake away some of the things that I believed about my identity, that I believed about what marriage was in its in its definition, uh, so that. When I came to a place where I had a specific person in mind, I was better equipped to enter into that, that, that proximate and immediate preparation for marriage. And all of us have to come to, uh, to an understanding of who we are as a person, taking into account uh, all the things that have come before, the things that have shaped us, uh, our family of origin, our, our, uh, life experiences outside of the family. All of these things play into uh, how we enter into marriage. Uh, perhaps you had the, the benefit of exploring those things before you got married, but many of us still continue to unpack those things after that marriage date. Uh, and some for some, that's good because we have someone to process with. For others, that can create a point of conflict. And a quick perusal of social media, uh, or just even a little bit of, of observational skills, will show you that we in our society don't necessarily have the best conflict skills. Conflict resolution is not really high on that list of, of skills that we receive. You know, we get told, oh, don't argue, or don't do this, or don't do that, rather than being shown how to argue well. And then beyond that, many people growing up in broken homes uh, have not really seen conflict resolved. Perhaps they've seen conflict and they've seen conflict build and and they've seen conflict bring damage and pain. And so this very often leads to uh, to other unhealthy behaviors. Maybe there's a pendulum swing where they say, well, I'm not going to behave toward conflict in that way, but I'm going to go in a different direction with my conflict. And so to help us talk about that today, we're going to be talking with Dr. Daniel and his wife, Bethany Miola. Uh, both of them have degrees from the Pontifical John Paul II Institute for Marriage and Family Life. Thanks for being here today. Hello. Good morning. I want to talk about your program called Life-Giving Wounds that, that I, I find just intriguing because so often we receive these wounds and we we cope with them and we deal with them and we kind of push them down into the corner and really don't give them any attention and don't pay attention to the fact that they are affecting the way that we interact with others. They're, they're affecting the, the course of our day. Uh, we can have just huge reactions to the world around us, all coming from our family of origin, all coming from things that happened a long time ago that we don't even really give attention to anymore. And 
in doing that, I'm pushing these wounds aside and not giving them the attention they need. Um, they leave us in a place of really not knowing ourselves and not knowing uh, why we respond the way we do, why we interact the way we do, where some of our bad habits come from. And so I love this this beautiful concept of a retreat and a community to help people kind of parse some of that out. So let's talk a little bit about what this program, Life-Giving Wounds, is all about. Life-Giving Wounds, that name comes from Scripture, uh, 1 Peter 2, 24. By his wounds, you have been healed. So it's this uh, paradoxical concept of Christianity. You know, it's utterly unique to Christianity. And specifically, I think Catholicism really gets into this concept of what's called redemptive suffering. So when we speak of life-giving wounds, we're first referring to Christ's wounds himself on the cross and how that became part of his glory and the resurrection. I mean, I love, love, love that image that he still has his wounds mm-hmm. uh, after he's resurrected. Why? Like, isn't that, isn't God supposed to get rid of all suffering? It's, it's this beautiful paradox. Christianity is like, well, no, because it's become part of his glory. So sort of descending from that beautiful view, we get into the mess. We get in the mess of people's lives because we're incarnational, just like Christ did, you know. And specifically, we look at the pain of adult children of divorce or separation. And separation we use as a broad term for anybody whose uh, parents are no longer together, loving them in the home, mm-hmm. you know, cohabitation, one night stands, whatever. The only two exceptions that warrant a special uh, ministry's death of a parent or uh, adoption. You know, those are unique wounds we don't address. So, yeah, it's a little bit about what we do sort of globally and and our inspiration from Christ. And it is what you said, like, we have to get into the mess. At some point in our life, we have to be not afraid and confront the wounds because they're affecting our life. Mm -hmm. So I appreciate you saying that, Teal. So I'm interested in this because the whole concept of dealing with the repercussions of of the, the the emotional interpersonal things going on in, in divorce is really I feel like fairly a new thing. It used to be kind of pull yourself up by your bootstraps and move on. Uh, there'll be some people that come around mom and dad for a while and and either you know say that oh you're better off and and kind of pull them in that way or we'll console them for a time. Um, but then everyone else gets on with their lives and you're left to deal with, with, with what's left over. And so, you know, we've had marriage counseling for a while. We've, we've had, you know, completely separate from the idea of dealing with this in church, uh, this microcosm of, of therapy and, and options outside. But it seems like in the church support groups are probably maybe in the last 20 years starting to pick up steam and, and be seen and be visible. But even then um, you might even have something for, you know, the, the children, a program, you know, mom goes over here, dad goes over here, and then maybe we have a program for the children. But what about all those people who were children when there was nothing? What about all of the people who, and the numbers are, are staggering, uh, the numbers of people who grew up in broken homes uh, and and whose lives are now affected because we learn 
how to be in marriage and how to interact with the world around us by our first teachers, our parents. And if that has been broken, how do we, uh, how do we interact? And of course, this is something that you have not only studied at uh, when you were at the Pontifical John Paul II Institute for Marriage and Family out in in uh, D.C., but it's something that you have experienced yourself, Daniel. So talk a little bit about um, your own experience and how that brought you to the place of bringing this to bear. Yeah, um, man, there's so much there I want to unpack what you just said, but I'll go with what you said. Like, yeah, I mean, I felt utterly alone. So I'm a child of divorce, uh, as a child, as a teen going through all of this and really wanting something for the church and for those and for the adults that like you said that fell through the cracks where there was nothing. Um, and there's often a sleeper effect too. And I, I don't know if I would have been prepared to really talk and dive into the wound as a child, uh, more so towards the later end of my teen years, I was ready, but it wasn't really until like young adulthood that I had like enough independence could sort of look at it. So that's why we really focus on adults right now, you know, love to eventually go down to teens, et cetera. But um, yeah, for me, I just felt utterly alone. And like you said, it's still the case. A lot of people say that, Oh, this was the best for everybody involved. So like shoulder on or just console them for a very short time. That was certainly my experience. I just hated it. I was so angry that I wasn't allowed to grieve this horrible, tragic loss in my life. And I've heard this again and again and again, how angry people get because they, they get the message that you're not allowed to grieve this. And that makes them feel utterly, utterly alone. Even if they have many friends, if you have this like gaping wound in your life that you can't talk about with anybody because you're just expected to go along with like, oh, this is what was best for everybody involved. And that's the end of the story right there. I mean, that, that, that really destroys people. That destroys people's self-worth that destroys their relationships because they have this gaping wound that they feel like they can't address. It affects so much. So I really appreciate you bringing that up. Well, there's also the, the hidden issue, right? There, there's the part of, well, I'm, I'm angry because my, my parents have split up, but there's also the part of, um, I am experiencing these difficulties in my life and I'm experiencing uh, frustration and anger and, and really this, this lack of support. And I'm told that it doesn't matter. I'm told that, that I am just bringing up wounds for other people and I'm not allowed to really deal with them myself. Uh, Yeah. I mean, one of the wounds that we talk about in our ministry is the wound of silence that exactly what you're, you're mentioning, you know, time and again, adult children of divorce say they didn't feel like there was any place to share what they were going through. Um, you know, going through divorce, is a trauma and that can also just trauma, you know, shuts us down. So that's another reason why it, it can be really difficult to look at those wounds. It's painful. It's, you know, people come on retreat and they may have never dived into that particular wound to the depth that we go on in the retreat. And ultimately, it's very healing to do so, but it's also scary. You know, it takes courage to take that step. Um, and especially if people feel in their life that that sharing about what they experienced as a child of divorce is not welcome or, you know, would would just add to their parents' pain. I mean, obviously, children of divorce still love their parents deeply um, and they don't want to cause them more pain, but it can be tricky to figure out how do I deal with what this has done in my life? 
Um, so that's one of the main wounds that we that we address. And I wanted to go back something you said, just thinking about, you know, how has the church addressed this topic or not addressed this topic? Um, something that really struck us as we were we were, you know, feeling this inspiration to start life giving wounds was they did a study and young adults reported that two thirds of them had no one from their church or their faith community reach out to them when their parents were going through a divorce. So only a, min- a minority of people even had someone say something to them. And these are people that are that are part of faith communities. So I think that that number really struck us that, you know, there's a lot of kids out there that this is happening in their family and there's just nothing. I mean, they just feel completely unmoored. And then, you know, you had alluded to when they get to adulthood and looking to form their own marriages, their own families, and they don't have the model to look at from their their parents. Um, that's often when people will contact us and go on our retreats when that serious relationship has started and they realize like, I don't know what I'm doing and I'm terrified and all this anxiety and this fear and all of these emotions have, are coming up um, and I'm not sure, you know, what to do with it. So that's, we address that in depth, you know, on our retreats and our materials um, to help those people feel courage and confidence that they can have good relationships and good marriages despite their parents not their marriage not lasting. We're talking today with Dr. Daniel and his wife, Bethany Miola, about their program, Life Giving Wounds. And if you are a person who is going through some difficulty in your marriage, you aren't sure what to do and you're hearing this and saying, well, I, I gosh, I, I didn't realize there were such long lasting effects. Then I want to tell you about the USCCB's website, foryourmarriage.org. Uh, there's wonderful resources there as well as a, a program that I think is listed on the website, but one that you should know about uh, is called Retrovi. It's a program for couples who are dealing with difficulty in marriage and helping them find again uh that that commitment and that place of love, not just to shoulder on and and grin and bear it, but to true, find true healing in the midst of that difficulty. But now let's return to this topic of of children who are uh, adult children of divorce who are now trying to find health in their own marriage. Uh, I'm going to assume that people deal with trauma differently. And so this is not a, a universal, but I'm going to assume that there's at least some component of people who find themselves trapped in the same place that they saw their parents in and uncertain of how to deal with that. What would, what would you say uh, is the number of times that you see that and how would you suggest that someone proceed? Yeah. I mean, this is a recurrent theme. Um, and, and one of the lasting effects of the wound that needs to be overcome is they, a lot of children of divorce separation feel like they are going to repeat their parents' mistakes. And I always just start off with saying, we are not our parents. We are not our parents. We are not our parents. Yes, we we learn a lot from them. We do stress that they were the most important relationship growing up in our lives. But yet we are unique individuals. And with God's grace, we can break free from the generational cycle of sin and things like that in our life. So just first to remember that more than being in the image of our parents, we're in the image of God, Right. And we need to believe that and accept that. But then confront, okay, what are those bad things that we picked up along the way? Um, Whether that's habits or whether that's in response to the wound. How is the past filtering our present? I always want to give a little commentary when people say like, oh, just live in the present. Don't look at the past. I'm like, well, you really (laughs) want to live in the present. You got to address the past. We're a unity of time in our person. You know, uh, the past filters our present. So it's absolutely the case 
that we have to, at some point in our life, intentionally look at these past wounds and how they're affecting our relationship. All right. But then getting beyond that, uh, we try to give them very concrete direction in our ministry about the different ways. Uh, when you're wounded, I like to put it very simply, you self-protect. Mm-hmm. And the church gives us this beautiful vision of marriage that we need to self-give, total self-giving. I, I love that. For me, when I heard that and learned about that definition of love, it really, really resonated with my heart. But more than my heart, it was also my wounds. Like, yes, mm-hmm. this is the answer. So then it's trying to figure out, okay, how in your life you are self-protecting in a relationship that's otherwise good with your spouse, hopefully, uh, and to allow that love to flourish by being more self-giving. And if there are issues, like you said, in your own marriage to, to try to go retrovive. But again, what we see often is we take those past experiences of those bad relationships with our parents sort of projected on our marriage, maybe not our spouse, but we become like hyper vigilant that our marriage might turn out just like our parents' marriage. And then we can start acting in certain ways that impedes the love. So it's just that intentional living towards self-giving that we really try to help um, people see in their marriages, but also going backwards in the dating because these patterns start in dating uh, and it can sabotage some, you know, good dating relationships. And then the flip side, I, I got to just say one other thing. So you look at the wounds, but but the other side of it, the redemptive side too, is trying to see in your wound a resource for love. Because the other side of it is I see a lot of adult children, divorce, separation, really fighting so hard for their marriages, being so intentional about love. And that comes from that motivation of that wound of seeing that brokenness of love. So to also see that your wound can be a catalyst for love as well. So there's that two-side thing of one, seeing how it's problematically affecting your marriage, but then see how it can be a resource for your marriage going forward that, you know, Lord never leaves us empty-handed. And again, I'm talking about a wound that has been uh, begun to be healed with Christ, with Christ's grace, right? So very broadly, that's sort of how it would go in that direction, helping folks. You had this picture of, well, I'm, I'm just going to live in the present. And... Uh, <laughs> the picture that came into my mind is I'm, I'm just, I'm just going to live in the present. I'm going to drink the coffee out of this coffee cup. I'm not going to really think about all of the other days that this has gone unwashed and all of the things that my children may have put in it. I'm just going to fill it up and drink it just as it is. You know, sometimes we have to clean out the container. <laughs> so, sometimes we have to look at what, what germs our children have, have put in it as they've carried it from one place to another and say, you know, Washing out the container is good and cleaning out, cleaning out the space in my heart so that I can partake and give of love appropriately. Maybe that's, that's not such a bad idea. We're talking today with Dr. Daniel and his wife, Bethany Miola, about their program, Life Giving Wounds. That's a wonderful retreat. If you want to know more about it, go to lifegivingwounds.org. There's more to come right after the break as we continue to talk about how our life experiences shape our reality today. Join the ongoing conversation over on social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls. On Twitter, the handle's at outside the walls. There's much more right after this. You're listening to Outside the Walls with TL.
Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the implications of our belief on our daily lives. I'm your host, TL. We're talking today with Dr. Daniel and his wife, Bethany Miola. Uh, they are the, the, the founders and the purveyors of lifegivingwounds.org. It's a, a retreat program that helps adult children of divorce. Uh, they both studied at the Pontifical John Paul II Institute for Marriage and Family and took their own experiences, brought them together with their studies, and have created this program, which I think is essential and of great benefit for our day and our time. Thank you again for being on the show. Absolutely. Yeah, great to be here. So, Bethany, I wanted to talk to you a little bit because you have a, a different story, as is often the case with couples who get married. Um we bring in our, our our different families of origin, and on the best day, when you have two people uh, who come from intact families, uh, that can be a source of stress and of fights because you're folding the towels wrong. I was told the right way to fold the towels is in third and third and third and third, and my wife is doing third and third and half and half and half, and this is not good. And so, if that's the case, that on the best day. You have two people from two different families of origin coming in together, trying to make a new family and finding all of the rough edges. How much more so have you found that to be uh, coming into a marriage where some of the things that are happening, you can't explain why they're happening? Yeah, so uh, for me, I'm, I'm not a child of divorce. My parents are still married. Thanks be to God. Um, you know, they've gone through rough patches. They had a few separations, but they worked it out, which has been a tremendous witness to me. Um, so when I met Dan and, you know, kind of learned about his family background as a child of divorce, we dated, we got engaged, got married. Um, it was very eye-opening for me to see, you know, how the, the impact of divorce on children, it carries on. It's not like it reaches, you know, a clean end and then it's done because, you know, his parents are his parents for the rest of his life. So he has those two families that are now split and has to navigate between them. And that doesn't go away. You know, if anything, it gets more complicated um, as different people are added to the families. You know, as we added to our own family, now we have, you know, grandparents and figuring out visits and just like on, both on a practical level, um, but also the emotional difficulty that that can bring up. So that was very eye-opening to me and kind of made me realize that for children of divorce, it's an ongoing thing. I mean, that's a motivation behind our ministry to offer the retreat that's really that, you know, impactful, intense time of healing, of going deep in the wounds, of moving forward, um, of seeing Christ there in the wounds. But also, you know, we provide support groups um, that is going accompaniment. And we also, we love when people who come through our, our program, our ministry, make those connections with each other, because since it is a lifelong cross to carry. Um, we need that lifelong support. Um, so that that's a big motivation behind what we do. And also just, you know, as the spouse who's from an intact home, just also seeing, you know, together um, what joy it brings to have this marriage and have this home together. Um, I was I just really touched by how much that means to Dan. Of course, it means something to me. But from him, from a broken home, you know, he's expressed how how grateful he is that we have a home together. And that really gives us so much inspiration to keep our marriage strong, um, strong and healthy, happy and holy. Yeah. Uh, Daniel, one of the things that we talked about over the break was the difficulty of, of 
not having that support as a child when your parents are going through divorce from the parish community. And kind of what I've seen as I've, I've watched this play out both from my time in the diocese uh, and, and my time working in parishes is, you know, divorce is, is something that is sprung on everyone except the husband and wife, right? When you have a disagreement, very often you do your best uh, to have your fight in private because it's something you don't want to bring the world into. Uh, and by the time that the divorce is announced, uh, it's already too late to do anything about, right? The, so not only do, uh, do the couple go through this fight and go through this difficulty, they go through it very often alone. Uh, they don't bring anyone into it. They won't allow anyone into it. And then when they do finally announce it, uh, there's this sense of from the community, oh, well, we're really not allowed to speak into that or to to, to assist or uh, anything along those lines. It becomes a place of, you know, we're allowed to gossip about this for three weeks. Did you hear about John and Jake? You know, what, what, what happened to them? We do that for three weeks and then we drop it and it's never to be spoken of again. Uh, and there's no sense of we as a community are going to come and we're going to love them both and we're going to uh, bring them support, right? We, we've, I think, bought into the cultural lie that um, that divorce and separation is final. Oh, nothing can be done about that. Um, and we've lost the sense of, of seeing the God who brings resurrection bring resurrection into families. So how can we as a, as a church both support adult children of divorce, but also support families in the midst of that difficulty to maybe prevent some of these things from happening and being carried on into the future? Yeah. I mean, one thing is it'd be very interesting to learn more about why couples keep all their private stuff to themselves and, and don't reach out a lot for help. And, and I think one thing is we, we need to be a church that's more vulnerable about our wounds. You know, we see this in our ministry too, that uh, by being vulnerable with our own wounds, our own past at some point, whether that's a confidential retreat or doing a talk like this or whatever, it gets people to open up about their stories and to reach out for that help. So, I mean, just one thing I'm thinking of is, you know, we need to be a more vulnerable church mm-hmm. and to not be afraid to talk about our wounds, our own messiness, being on our way. You know, I, we've also been working in a church context for a while and too often lay ministers, priests, et cetera, feel like they have to have it all together. <laughs> yeah. and, and really the most inspiring examples are those who, yeah, they're holy, but they're very honest about their struggles and what they're working on, et cetera. Um, and that really motivates you know, me, you know, who's, you know, fallen and not perfect. None of us are perfect. Right. So being more of a vulnerable church, uh, I think is, is key. And that's also the key for our ministry as well. But then also just to, to recognize what you said, yeah, it's a surprise often to the children as well. Uh, Like we said, surprise everybody, but the couple It's it's almost always a surprise to the kids. Even the kids who are very aware of the fighting, a lot of them think, okay, mom and dad are going to work it out. Mm-hmm. And they're shocked. And that's, it adds to part of the trauma um, when it doesn't, and then it's announced that they're getting a divorce. And then often those announcements are, are you know, 
there's just horror stories we've heard over the years about how they've been handled mm -hmm. very poorly. Um, so I appreciate what you're saying about it being a surprise to everybody, uh, including the children. So, um, yeah, and I also appreciate what you're saying, like, no relationship is outside the cross and resurrection. Like, we can redeem it. Yeah. And so, please, if you're in this situation, please, please, please get help. Um, I mean, use the pain of the children, the stories of the children as motivation to stick it out as well, because it's also a lie that they're fed by the culture that the kids will be all right. Mm -hmm. uh, and they're resilient and they'll get better after a year or two. That's just not the case. This is a long lasting pain that has devastating roots. So if you're outside of the very, very small fraction of people who, you know, the church does say for their own safety, right. you know, because of abuse, if you're outside of that group, like, please, please work on your marriage, fight for your marriage. Yeah. And we also know that marriage goes through ups and downs. And if you're in one of those downs, like the, the up can come back. Yeah. And it makes it that much sweeter. So that's a little bit what I would say. What would you say, dear? I would stress, you know, parents that are thinking about divorce, take the time to read the testimonies of adult children of divorce. Um, because just to add to what Dan said, there's there's so many articles out there about how to divorce correctly. You know, how to divorce in a way that's not going to have as much of an impact on your children. And those give the false impression that, you know, if you do all these things, check the check the boxes, your kids will be basically fine. Um, granted, we're not suggesting that people going through a divorce should be as acrimonious as possible. But just to push back against that idea of the good divorce um, as something better than even a marriage that is struggling and, you know, the kids having their intact marriage. And as Dan said, I mean, well, there was a study about, you know, couples that were at a really low point. They checked back in with them five years later. The ones that had not divorced, they were better. You know, it's not a the rough patches are not going to last forever for the majority, vast majority of marriages. So taking that time to not not have self-deception uh, and really taking the time to listen to kids who have gone through this and who are old enough to give, give their perspective on what happened to them and what it was like, I think. You know, really should be something that anybody considering divorce should should sit with. It's not easy, but it's a such an impactful decision. You know, that needs to. I just think that should happen. Yeah, and, and let me jump in here too because a lot of people speak for the children falsely. I would say in the society, they say like, "Oh, what children really most desire is that you know that their parents are happy," and that's not <laughs> true. Like, if you ask all children divorce what would they prefer a marriage of their parents who are fighting versus their parents being divorced on the whole, largely it's, it's, it's the parents who are fighting, but still married. I have to say, I it's have really eight kids and I can guarantee you not one of them is thinking, gosh, I hope mom and dad are happy. It drives me nuts. I mean, yes, the, the deepest desire as children is that our parents love each other. Right. right. But, but yeah, but happiness is like, it's, it's a moving target, right? Like some days you're not happy, but you can still love. Yeah. You can still love. And, and what we desire is that our parents love each other. Yeah. We're talking today with Dr. Daniel and his wife, Bethany Miola, and their program, Life Giving Wounds. Find out more at lifegivingwounds.org. You know, I'm, I'm looking at this and I'm trying to identify or diagnose some of the things that might lead to this isolation. And uh, there's a couple of things that, that I think may contribute. One is that we like to hear what we like to hear. And when we're going through pain, we want to find someone who says, yeah, you should be upset. You should be angry. You should be hurt. 
uh, rather than seeking out someone who can help us contextualize or, or, or put things into perspective. Uh, and so typically when you're going through difficulty in marriage, you're going to find those cheerleaders who are encouraging you in your wounds rather than encouraging you to find healing and to find uh, wholeness. And, and then I would say the second thing that I notice is that parishes have in general, and I think that this is not so much uh, something about our parishes as much as it is about our society, we have a difficult time with vulnerability and with community. We we like to put that best face forward. We don't want people to see us in the line to the confessional because that means we did something wrong. We 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 like to have our Facebook and Instagram perfect uh, life put out for everybody else, and they can see our Pinterest things. But gosh, don't don't come into my house because then you'd see the real mess. Um, and I, I don't know the best way to overcome that for us. We like to do brunch on, on Sunday and we try to invite people over and our house is very often a mess. And it's like, well, you were, if, if we're going to be friends, you're going to see this eventually. So, you know, here we are, but how do we foster those kinds of, of relationships and that kind of community, uh, ahead of time for people who are going through difficulty and invite them into that kind of community ahead of time to maybe uh, prov- provide that support in the midst of their difficulty instead of trying to, to find it after the fact? Uh, I think personal witness is, you know, the key and is the main thing. I mean, just like you just mentioned, like you and your wife giving that witness of your life isn't perfect, but, you know, come on in, be part of the group, be part of our world. Um, I mean, I will say, for example, we have some priests that are involved in our ministry who are adult children of divorce. And them being vulnerable about that background and what that has done to them. I mean, there, we've gotten a lot of feedback that retreatants are really touched by that. Um, because, you know, sometimes you think of priests in particular or leaders in the church as coming from a perfect family, a perfect Catholic family, um, not having these wounds, not going through this kind of thing. So that has a big impact. And I mean, beyond that, our model is very much a, a peer-based ministry. So the leaders on the retreat are themselves adult children of divorce or separation and giving that witness, you know, goes such a long way. So then when, you know, they're talking about how the wounds affected them, it makes it real. Um, It's not just, you know, talking at people, but it's really sharing with them. And it's amazing to see, you know, in the small group setting, um, the barriers breaking down and people being vulnerable about extremely sensitive and personal things in their life that they may have never shared with anyone. Um, so at least on our retreats and in our support groups, we do our best to create that environment that people feel comfortable sharing, which is a tremendous step on that pathway of healing and hopefully, you know, start forming those friendships, those relationships with people who get it, who share that same wound, um, that they can, you know, feel comfortable sharing and being open about it for the sake of their greater healing. In the, in the last minute that we have here, if someone is hearing this and, and they want to have access to life-giving wounds, the the retreat, um, y'all are out in D.C., how would they get life-giving wounds where they are in their diocese or in their parish? Yeah, so first of all, we have a few different options. One, if they're immediately interested, we have an online retreat going on starting October 1st on Thursday evenings through November 12th. So we have online offerings for dioceses we're not yet in. But we do prefer in-person ministry. We'll always favor that. 
And so if you're in a position of leadership or if you're just a child of divorce and want to advocate for this to your uh, pastor, to your bishop, et cetera, uh, share with them lifegivingwounds.org. We have a page, Bring Life-Giving Wounds to Parish, to Diocese. We also are doing more with college campuses. So if you're a campus minister, think about this. Uh, we have a 10, 10 step easy start guide on our website. So that would be the best place. And I would say that if you're a lay person, if you're not the, the person who would, who would from the, uh, the official side, bring them in, if you're not in the, in the diocese, you're not in the chancery, you're not uh, on parish staff and you bring this to them and say, this is an important program. Don't say this is an important program. Bring it, say, this is an important program. And I would like to do the legwork to help bring them in with your approval. Because having worked in church staff, I was given numerous things that would have been great to do. I just didn't have the bandwidth to do them. And so Mm -hmm. if this is something that is resonating with you, don't wait on the staff to do it for you. Yes, get their approval. Make sure that it's okay to bring it into the diocese. There there are things that you have to go through. But by all means, take up that standard and run with it. We've been talking today with Dr. Daniel and his wife, Bethany Mayola. Thank you all so much for taking the time to be on the show today. Thank you. Thank you. It's been great. If you missed any part of the show today or you want to share it with your friends, have no fear. All of our episodes are archived over at OutsideTheWalls.com. And really, all of us know someone who would benefit from this. Every one of us, uh, just because of the statistics of divorce in our culture, all of us know someone uh, who grew up in a broken home and perhaps hasn't really had the opportunity to to wrestle with what that means at a heart level. And this would be a wonderful episode for them to be a part of, for them to hear. And I encourage you, take that extra five seconds. Find the episode on OutsideTheWalls.com. Share it on your Twitter, on your Facebook, on your whatever your favorite social media platform happens to be. Uh, and put out this information because so many people could benefit from it. But wait, there's more. There's always more for our Patreon supporters. Each and every week, I get an extra couple of questions in with our guests and make that available to all of those who help keep this show on the air and make this show a reality. If you want to be one of those people, simply while you're there sharing this episode at OutsideTheWalls.com, look up in the top right-hand corner of the page and you'll see a link that says support the show hyphen Patreon. Uh, Click that link. It will take you to the page that gives you all the information. You'll have some access to some of the segments that we have put up uh, in the past, but then there's also the super secret lockdown segments that are available to those people who give sometimes as little as $5 a month to get an episode and extra segment each and every week. Consider helping us stay in the air doing that today. But now, let's turn our attention over to our reading from Scripture and from church history. That's the sound, my favorite sound. The sound of our Verbum Library is launching. You can get your own Verbum Library by going to Verbum.com. You get a free trial for 30 days, see what you think of it, uh, and you won't regret it. Our reading today from Scripture comes from the responsorial psalm, think later this week. I, I don't remember quite where I, I pulled this from. Uh, and, and it says this, in every age, O Lord, you have been our refuge. You turn men back to dust saying, return, O children of men, for a thousand years in your sight 
are as yesterday now that it's past, or as a watch of the night. In every age, O Lord, you have been our refuge. You make an end of them in their sleep. The next morning they are like the changing grass, which at dawn springs up anew, but by evening wilts and fades. In every age, O Lord, you have been our refuge. Teach us to number our days aright, that we may gain wisdom of heart. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. In every age, O Lord, you have been our refuge. Fill us at daybreak with your kindness, that we may shout for joy and gladness all our days. Prosper the work of our hands for us. Prosper the work of our hands. In every age, O Lord, you have been our refuge. That reading comes from the responsorial psalm. It's Psalm uh, Psalm 90. And I, I picked that one today because it's important for us to get a true sense of our of our timeline to realize that life is short and that the relationships that we build here are what we take with us this is the most important thing we can do and so yes we ask for god's presence we ask for his grace we ask for him to give us his kindness that we may shout with joy and gladness all of our days and that our hand, the work of our hands will be prospered. But, but that refrain that we return to in this psalm is to me the key. In every age, O Lord, you have been our refuge. And what a healing thing it can be to, to sit with the, the difficulty and the pain and the, uh, the, the tumult of our life and to look back on our history and to say, where God, where were you in this? Not a, not necessarily in an accusing way, but really in a curious and seeking way. Sitting there, looking at the memory and and in all of its fullness, and saying, "God, where where were you here?" And then giving him enough time and enough silence that he can show you, because he was there. Because in every age, O oh Lord, you have been our refuge. And I have found in my own experience that when I do that and when I sit with these difficult memories and I I ask for a perspective uh, that shows me where God was in the midst of that pain, I find that very often he wants to show me. He wants to prove to me that he's been my refuge. And because he has been faithful back then, I can trust that he will continue to be my refuge today and today's difficulties. Today's reading from church history comes from a book on Christian formation by St. Gregory of Nyssa. Whoever is in Christ is a new creation. The old has passed away. Now by the new creation, Paul means the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in a heart that is pure and blameless, free of all malice, wickedness, or shamefulness. For when a soul has come to hate sin and has delivered itself as far as it can to the power of virtue, it undergoes a transformation by receiving the grace of the Spirit. Then it is healed, restored, and made wholly new. Indeed, the two texts 
purge out the old leaven that you may be a new one. And let us celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Support those passages which speak about the new creation. Yet the tempter spreads many a snare to trap the soul, and of itself human nature is too weak to defeat him. This is why the apostle bids us to arm ourselves with heavenly weapons, when he says, put on the breastplate of righteousness and have your feet shod with the gospel of peace and have truth around your waist as a belt. Can you not see how many forms of salvation the apostle indicates, all leading to the same path and the same goal? Following them to the heights of God's commandments, we easily complete the race of life. For elsewhere, the apostle says, let us run with fidelity the race that has been set before us, with our eyes on Jesus, the origin and the goal of our faith. So a man who openly despises the accolades of this world and rejects all earthly glory must also practice self-denial. Such self-denial means that you will never seek your own will, but God's, using God's will as a sure guide. It also means possessing nothing apart from what is held in common. In this way, it will be easier for you to carry out your superior's commands promptly, in joy and in hope. This is required of Christ's servants who are redeemed for service to the brethren. For this is what the Lord wants when he says, whoever wishes to be first and great among you must be the last of all and the servant of all. Our service to mankind must be given freely. One who is in such a position must be subject to everyone and serve his brothers as if he were paying off a debt. Moreover, those who are in charge should work harder than the others and conduct themselves with greater submission than their own subjects. Their lives should serve as a visible example of what service means. And they should remember that those who are committed to their trust are held in trust from God. Those then who are in a position of authority must look after their brothers as conscientious teachers look after their young children who have been handed over to them by their parents. If both disciples and masters have this loving relationship, then subjects will be happy to obey what is whatever is commanded by their superiors and be delighted to lead their brothers to perfection. If you try to outdo one another in showing respect, Your life on earth will be like that of the angels. That reading comes from a book on Christian formation by St. Gregory of Nyssa. And it seems a little off topic from today, but it's really not. uh, Because when you look at this in the context of the family, and you can see how God expects us to live in community and, and how we are expected to be the servant, that we as moms and dads are to be uh, to, to recognize that our children who have been given to us have been given to us in trust by God, and we have a responsibility to God as we raise them. And most importantly, no matter what has happened before, God has come to make us new creations. That's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for tuning in. Today's show is brought to you by Drs. Michael and Julie Highland and all those who support the show through Patreon. Go over to OutsideTheWalls.com, click the Patreon link, and join their numbers. And until next week, let nothing disturb you. Let nothing affright you. All things are passing, but God is unchanging. Patience obtains all things. Who has God lacks nothing. God alone 
suffices.